Okay, well, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be confining ourselves this morning to studying from verse 12 through 16. And to really understand the context, we're going to need to read from verse 7, that wonderful passage where Paul is talking about the greatest thing in his life, being known Jesus. So let's read together from verse 7 of chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you that it is your speech, your words. So, Father, as we sit then again under your words this morning, would you dazzle us? Would you affect us? Would you minister to us? Would you equip us and encourage us and provoke us? Would your word really do the work you've designed it to do. Would we hear your voice, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. And here's the question that I want to start off with this morning. And it's simply this. Have you ever encountered somebody in your life who's really godly, who genuinely is really godly? They love the Lord and it's evident throughout all their lives. And as you encounter them, and particularly having encountered them, found yourself maybe somewhat intimidated, maybe even somewhat discouraged. See, as I thought about that question this week, I realised I certainly have. I've encountered many people who truly love the Lord, and you, you encounter them, and you spend time with them, and you realise, hey, you clearly love Jesus with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. The greatest thing in your life is quite clearly knowing the Lord and then I get involved in your marriage and you think, yeah, you are, you are a great husband and you're a great dad and you seem to love the lost and find it really easy to be able to talk to people about Jesus and your quiet times, man, you're smashing it out. You're so routine and disciplined. And then I come away from them and in some ways I just feel intimidated by them. I feel discouraged by them. Sometimes I even come away from people like that and wonder whether I'm even a Christian. You ever done that? You go home to your wife and you're like, you know, I've been with this individual. I'm not sure I'm actually a Christian at all. You know, if that's what it is, I feel so far short. 
And the truth is, that's what happens to me when I read chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Philippians as well. See, the Apostle Paul is taking time to talk to us about godly examples, isn't he? Godly examples of Timothy, the godly examples of Epaphroditus, and you can't help but be challenged and provoked by them and maybe even intimidated. As in chapter 2, Paul sets before us Timothy, a guy who has a sincere and compelling concern for the welfare of others. And you encounter him and you're inspired, you think, this, this is great. But you can also be intimidated by his life. He seems to think about others all the time and care for others in a, in a profound way. Then there's Epaphroditus, who offers a sincere and compelling sacrifice for the cause of Christ. You find it inspiring, but you're also intimidated by him. Okay, so we've got Timothy, we've got Epaphroditus, and then we've got Paul, this guy who's just, and everything he does, verses 8 through 11, what's clear about him is the greatest thing in his life is knowing Christ. And when I encounter that, I can be inspired by that. You just think, this guy's rocking it out of the park. He, he loves Jesus. The greatest thing in all his life is loving Jesus. It's, it's inspirational, but it's also intimidating. And I can encounter Paul and wonder in response whether I'm even a Christian at all. If, if the greatest thing in all his life is knowing Jesus, you know, I love Jesus, I want to be with Jesus, but as I judge myself up against Paul, I'm aware that my, my love for Jesus doesn't be quite as pronounced as his is. Author Kent Hughes says this about verses 8 to 11. He says, There is nothing in Scripture quite like this explosion of spiritual longing that we encounter in verses 8 to 11. There's nothing in Scripture quite like what we encounter in Paul with this explosion of longing as he talks about his love for Jesus. And I think if we're honest, we can find that inspiring, but we can also find that somewhat intimidating. And what I so love about Paul and his wise and careful pastoring of people is he knows that that's exactly what we're going to feel like. He knows we're going to feel intimidated by him. He knows we may even be discouraged by him and this explosion of spiritual longing that we just heard about his life. And so what he gives us here in verses 12 through 16 is a picture of Christian maturity. A true picture of Christian maturity. Not what we often think of it, namely just perfection and incredibleness, but a true picture of what Christian maturity looks like. A picture that is designed by Paul to inspire us and encourage us and a picture that is designed by Paul to give us hope. See, in verse 15, we read, let those of us who are mature think this way. He's going to be trying to help us see, okay, if you want to be mature in your life, we need to think like this. And yet the like this that he talks about prior to this moment is inspiring and encouraging and I think hope building every Christian in the room. So what does Christian maturity really look like? What does it look like to be mature in our lives for Christ? What does it really involve? Well, three things and here's the first. Number one, Christian maturity involves a humble awareness of what we're not. I love this. 
And even as you look at this in the scripture, for me, I just go, oh, thank goodness for that. Because Paul is inspiring and hope building in this moment. He's just talked to them in verses 8 through 11 about there is nothing that he desires more than Christ. He wants to suffer like Christ. He wants to suffer and know Christ in his life and in his death and in his resurrection all the way until he goes home with Christ. He wants to live for him. And then he says this in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Think you like that? I love that. He's just talked about all that he is and he's saying, but listen, let's be clear. Not that I've already obtained this. Not that I'm perfect. And if that wasn't enough, he then says this in verse 13. He echoes it again. He repeats it when he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. See, to Paul, he wants us to understand, yes, I love Jesus Christ, but just so you know, I haven't attained it. I'm not perfect. I haven't got all this going on. I'm on a journey just like everybody else. I need to grow to the Romans, he says to them in chapter 7. He says, you know what, there's a war going on in my heart and the very things I want to do for Jesus are very often the things I don't manage to do, the very things that I know I'm not meant to do, the very things I do do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's very aware there's a battle going on in his heart. He he wants to live for Jesus. His desire is to live for Jesus for all his heart and all his mind and all his strength. But he hasn't obtained that yet. He's not perfect. He's still on a journey. He's still on a mission. And accordingly, what he does right here then is he gives us this first picture of Christian maturity. And what is it? It's a picture of a guy who is humbly aware of what he's not. He's on a journey. But he's just like us. He's exactly the same as us, actually. You know, what a comfort this must have been for the Philippian church, don't you think? What a comfort for them to know, having just been placarded before their eyes, what a hero Paul is, in a sense, of how there is nothing else he desires apart from Christ in his life, to hear from him, but I'm still on a journey not perfect in this. I have not attained it. Sinclair Ferguson, in his little commentary for the Philippians, he says, So elevated is Paul's ambition of knowing Christ that weaker Christians might begin to doubt whether they are really Christians at all because they knew so little of this glorious knowledge. There would have been many people like that in the Philippian church that were new Christians, weaker Christians, and Paul's aware of that, that they would have been intimidated by what he's talking about in terms of his relationship with Jesus. So he wants to make it clear to them, I'm still on a journey. He's aware that if he doesn't make it clear to them, they could be discouraged, they could be intimidated by him, they could be condemned by him. And so what hope-filled comfort this would have brought to them, don't you think? To hear, Paul is just like us. He's still struggling. He's still trying, but he's not there yet. And in truth, what hope-filled comfort this should bring for us as well. You want to be mature? If you're mature, here's one of the resounding factors that will be taking place in your life. You'll be very aware that you're not there yet. Praise God for that. We know we can all do that. Be very, very nervous about people that claim to have attained it. Because Paul's saying, that ain't going to happen. 
That isn't going to happen this side of this is this side of eternity. We're going to be trying. We haven't attained it. It's not perfect. And as I was preparing for this message this week, my mind went back to quite a few people, quite a few of the older people at Christchurch, the church that I served in prior to being here. I was there for 17 years of my life. I've only really known three churches in my life, just being the third. I got to serve as a pastor there for 10 years. And one of the joys that I had is I started a group of old people. And I loved it. It was the over 65s. It was called Legacy. And it's for retirees. And we just wanted to minister to folk that were older and had more time. And we had people in that church that were in their 70s and their 80s and their 90s. And I really missed that. In truth, one of the joys of being here in Sydney is the average age seems to be younger. One of the hard things is the average age seems to be younger. Because we're missing something. And that's why for us as a local church, for some of us, we've got to make sure we die in this church we stay in the church and do some hard yards and don't just dare go everywhere else. Because that's what makes a mature church and grow. And I remember I'd spend time with, the reason why I took on Legacy and built that was because selfishly I wanted to spend time with them as well. I wanted to be with Hetty and Iwin and them ask me, how's, how's Joshua going? How's your ministry going? Joan Gladwin, and Peter Morse and Graham Ashton. And they were all, I was their pastor, but they were all 50, 60 years older than I was at that time. And here's one of the things I discovered about each and every one of them. The more mature they became, the more I saw godliness in their lives, without any doubt. They loved the Lord in a profound way. And they knew the Lord in a profound way. And yet each and every one of them would consistently tell you, oh, I haven't made it. I've got so much I need to grow in. There's so many things that I want to do that I don't do. So many things I don't want to do that, hey, I'm still struggling Paul says that's a sign of maturity. A sign of maturity in their lives. One man that I got to meet many years ago is a man called Jerry Bridges, who writes some of the books that we recommend to Sovereign Grace. Jerry Bridges was about 80 years old when I met him. He was actually writing another book when I met him. Just as an aside, I thought I'd actually killed him, which would have been a problem. I was actually given the responsibility of picking him up from his hotel one day, and I said something that made him laugh. At which point he started choking, and I thought, I'm going to be resuscitating the fellow. He was really old. I thought, we've just been praying for him that he's going to finish this book, and then I killed him on the way to college. And, but as an aside, one of the things I discovered about Mr. Bridges is he really loves the Lord. He's an elderly man. He's walked with the Lord for 50, 60 years of his life. He loves Jesus. And another thing that was very aware about him, he's very aware of his failings. Not past failings, his present things that he still needs to struggle with and still needs to grow in for the glory of the Lord. And everybody encounters that. In the introduction to his book, The Joy of Fearing God, this is what he says. Listen to this. This is a man in his 80s. So let me say right up front that I don't fully live up to the standard of truth presented in this book. I want to, and I seek to, but I'm not there yet, nor will I ever completely be in this life. So as you read this book, think of me as a fellow pilgrim walking alongside you. I'm not on top of the peak calling you to climb up to where I am. Rather, I'm standing with you as we both look to the summit of this great mountain called the fear of God. It's a challenging climb up, but also a joyous climb. And my prayer is that this book will help us both in our journey. Isn't that wonderful? Humility, Wisdom, 
maturity. And so it is with Paul. He's placarded before our eyes what it looks like to know Christ, like a mature Christian does. They know Christ, but then very quickly he wants to engage us and say, hey, let me see though, I'm just like you, not that I've attained this, I'm not perfect, I'm on a journey just like you. And so as he writes to the Philippians, and as God then writes to us, Paul doesn't stand aloft and then say, hey, I'm up here, coming up. He's saying, look, I'm maybe like one step ahead of you, but I'm exactly the same. Come with me on this journey. Come with me. Let's walk together. Let's climb the mountain of pursuing Christ, of knowing Christ together. True maturity involves a humble awareness of what we're not. That's not all. Number two, Christian maturity involves a passionate pursuit of the Saviour. See, it is true that Paul has not already obtained it, not already perfect, but we would be gravely mistaken if we think that because of that, Paul has become complacent. Because he's aware, listen, I haven't made it yet. I'm just enjoying grace. It's quite nice. And I'm not really pursuing holiness or nothing, but you know, I'm just resting. Paul's not complacent at all. And the second mark of his maturity then is that he is passionately pursuing the Saviour. Look with me again at verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I press on. I've not made it. I've not attained it. I'm not perfect, but I'm pressing on. I'm moving forward. I don't want to be complacent in my life. I want to press on to know him more. Then continues in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not perfect. I haven't attained it. But here's what I do. I'm pressing on. I'm straining on for the prize. I'm forgetting what lies behind and I'm straining on for the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm about. See, the poor... He then carefully uses this imagery of an athlete. See, the Olympic Games for us are things that that cause us to get all excited, aren't they, on the whole? People get excited about it. If I talk about a race at the Olympic Games, everybody's got an image of that and what it would look like straight away. You right, darling? Just my daughter. Puffer? Okay. As we talk about the Olympic Games, we know what that looks like straight away. Well, in, the, in this time, they would understand what the Greek games are. And they would think about the Greek games exactly the same way. They would know and have an image of that straight away as soon as Paul started talking about it. And so he's making it clear, you know what, I'm like an athlete. Not me. I know you know I'm a pastor athlete. But Paul, Paul is also a pastor athlete. So I can relate to him. He's an athlete in the making as a pastor because what he wants to help communicate to us to see is I forget what lies behind. That which lies behind in my life, I'm going to forget that. I want to forget what lies behind. Peter O'Brien says this in his commentary about these words. He says, Paul will not allow either the achievements of the past, which God has wrought, or for that matter his failures as a Christian to prevent his gaze from being firmly fixed on the finish line. His achievements of the past, 
His accent here is on post-conversion. This is not talking about what he used to be like before he was a Christian. The accent here is on post-conversion. And Paul, in reality, had many achievements that he had done post-conversion. Paul led many people to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Paul, Paul planted churches. He preached to churches. People's eyes were open for the gospel in front of Paul. He had suffered with Christ. He knew what it was to follow Christ, even to a detriment of himself. And Paul's perspective is, I'm forgetting what lies behind. I don't want to get complacent by saying, you know what, yeah, three years ago, I was so passionate about the Lord, and three years I gave much energy to building a local church, and three years ago, I was passionate about winning people for Christ, and because of that, I've done my time. Hey, give me a break, I'm retiring now, I'm out. Uh, Paul's aware, I'm going to forget what lies behind in those achievements. I'm pressing on, I'm, I'm moving on. I'm forgetting what lies behind, and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. Pressing on towards the prize. The prize that has been described for us in verses 8 through 11. The surpassing joy of knowing Christ and gaining Christ and being found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of his own, but having a righteousness that depends on faith and which opens the door then to truly knowing Christ and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection all the while leading to that day when you see Christ's face and you're with him for all eternity. To Paul, he's straining on for the prize of being with Christ. And prior to that day, he's all about knowing Christ. To Paul, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Everything in Paul's life is about knowing Christ. So have I attained it? Am I perfect? No! I'm on a journey but I'm on a passionate pursuit of the journey. I'm going after Jesus. I want to know him more. I want to be with him more. I want to be more like him. All the time leading towards the day when I see his face. I'm straining on for that day. See, to Paul, this is his one thing. The one thing that Paul is about, more than anything, is knowing Christ the greatest thing in all of his life. And to Paul then, passionately pursuing Christ is Christian maturity. Not that we fully attain it, not that we fully know him in in some type of utopia way, not that we're going to be perfect in it, but we passionately pursue it. We passionately pursue knowing him personally as our Lord and Saviour, both this day Looking forward to that day when we attain the wonderful prize of actually being with him. To Paul, that's Christian maturity. That's his one thing. Pursuing Christ. Let me ask you then this one question and a desire to be applicational. What then is your one thing? Paul's one thing is passionately pursuing Christ. Well, what's your one thing? What are you passionate about? If you're not sure, ask somebody close to you and ask them to ask you or examine your life and look at what you talk about, what you spend your money on, what you spend your time doing. Whatever the answer is to that, that's what you're passionate about. Regardless of what you think, that's what you're passionate about. 
What are you most passionate about? What do other people perceive you to be passionate about? What is your one thing? Because to Paul, his one thing is passionately knowing Jesus Christ. You know, if you're provoked by that, I want to encourage you, that's a good thing. Because this passage is here to provoke us. John Calvin once said that our hearts are idol factories. And they are. As C.S. Lewis says, we are all too easily pleased. And he goes on to make a picture of how we as Christians can be so busy making sandcastles in slums and forget that we've been invited to a day out at the beach. But instead we're over here making sandcastles in slums, just trying to find our identity and our purpose and our joy in stuff when we've been invited to be with Christ and to find our joy and everything in, in Him. If you're provoked by the fact that Jesus Christ isn't your all in all, I want to encourage you. God knows that our hearts are idol factories. He knows that. And so what he does is in grace and love, he comes after us through this word and through the gift of the Holy Spirit to bring your eyes to the reality that he isn't your all in all. And because he knows of the surpassing worth of his son, and because he wants your hearts to be all about his son, where you'll find true joy and true satisfaction and true purpose, he provokes you and convicts you through the gift of the Holy Spirit, not to discourage you, not to displace you, not to condemn you, but to bring you back to himself. So when we find ourselves provoked by the Lord as we're going through the word, we shouldn't be discouraged. I think first and foremost we should rejoice because this provocation is an expression of his love. An expression of his Holy Spirit opening our eyes again to, where have you gone? What, what are you doing over there? Come, come here. Come and sit at the feet again of the Saviour. My friends, if you're here today and you find yourself provoked by Paul's passionate pursuit of the Saviour, that's a good thing. And I want to begin to commend you, begin the assertion of having seen yourself in the mirror in that way by rejoicing in God, being aware that it is an expression of his love, that he's shown you that picture of yourself, and rejoice in him. I also want to encourage you in a couple of other things by way of pastoral application. I want to encourage you you're provoked by Paul's example. I want to encourage you to take some time out in the next day or so to prayerfully consider this one following question. What's one thing, by the grace of God, you could do differently this week that would position you to forget and to strain and to therefore position yourself for an increase in passion for the Saviour? What's one thing? What's one thing that you could do in your life to forget and to strain and to therefore position yourself to increase in passion for the Saviour? What's one thing? And I want to encourage you, just think of one thing. So I remember being at a conference where David Powlinson was there preaching and he talked about how we could be so tempted as Christians to be provoked by God's word and then have a very meaningful moment as we sing a song afterwards and repent of our sin and somebody prays for us 
and we leave with a list of 58 themes that we're going to apply this week. Because I'm on a mission now, we're doing this. And by Tuesday, we're buried under all the application that we're trying. So here's the premise for you. Just pick one thing. And in all reality, if you pick one thing, it affects so many other things anyhow. You pick one thing, it actually affects many things in our life. So what's one thing that you could do to help you forget what lies behind and to strain on to what is in front and therefore position yourself for an increase in passion for the Saviour? Secondarily, I want to encourage you, in the midst of everything else, give yourself to reading and thinking about Christ. See, my friends, this, this is a pastoral pleading moment. If we're going to be a mature church, we have to be a reading church. We do. And here's why. It's because there is a distinct link, a distinct correlation between reading and thinking and knowing and passion. There's a link. There's a link between all of those different things. And so if we truly want to be passionate about the Saviour, if we really want to be passionate about it, we've got to know him. And yet in so many people, in the desire to know him, there is some sort of link missing that they want to know him without any work at all. I don't want to read anything about him because I'm busy, I don't like reading. But I want to know him. I think you can do that. If we're going to be passionate about the Lord, then we're going to need to know the Lord. And if we want to know him, we know him through his word. And it's written down. It's going to involve reading. And folks, you are a bright people. I know for a fact many of you have got degrees. That means you read a lot. And just because we don't like to do something doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. That would be really immature, right? Don't we teach our kids that? Just because you don't like it doesn't mean you shouldn't eat it. Okay, fatherly moment. Just because you don't like eating the word doesn't mean you shouldn't eat it. We need to read. We need to spend time with God in his word. That's the only way that we're going to know him. That's the only way we're going to be passionate about him. There's all too many people, to be honest with you, that want to grow in religious affections for the Lord but do nothing to make that possible. Just want to have this charismatic moment where, woohoo, I just in love with him. Great. It will last you about 10 minutes unless you start to really know him. It won't be enough. It's just an experience. We need to know the Lord and we need to know the Lord through reading. So I want to encourage you, give yourself to this word. Give yourself to spending time with him in his word. And outside of this word, read supplemental material that will help you know Christ. Three recommendations. The book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you've never read that, it's a classic. Read it. It's a great book. And you will know God better as a result of reading Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Secondarily, The Pleasures of God by John Piper. That would be in my all-time top five books. It's an amazing book. Because you realise what God takes pleasure in, what God enjoys, what God delights in. The third book would be The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges, which I quote from before. It's amazing, the reality that God wants us to fear him and that the fear of God is the beginning of all knowledge. 
And so as we read about what it means to fear of God, we grow in knowledge. And as we grow in knowledge of God, guess what happens? You want to pursue him all the more. Because you become more and more amazed. It's unlikely that you'll be amazed and then say, because I'm amazed, I just want to read more and more. The starting place is we often give ourselves to pursuing in knowledge. And as we pursue in knowledge, then we find our appetites wet and we want to keep going. We must be a reading church if we're going to be a mature church. We need to know Christ. And to Paul, that then is the second marker of true maturity. It's passionate for pursuing Christ. And then there's number three. Christian maturity involves a determined holding on to the gospel. A determined holding on. Look with me at verse 16. Paul says, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I love that line. Let us hold true to what we've attained. That which we have been given. That which has been entrusted to us. Let us hold true to that. What is it that we've attained? What is it that we've been given? Well, in the context of these verses, he is placarding before our eyes, once again, the gospel. Let us hold true to the gospel. Let us have a determined hold on the gospel. So in verse 1, we shouldn't be surprised of chapter 3 when he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safer for you. What he's basically saying is, listen, everything I'm going to tell you next, you've heard it from me like a thousand times because you know me as your pastor, but I'm going to tell you again because it's no trouble to me and it's safe for you, so I'm going to tell you all about the gospel again. Let me tell you about my past. I used to put my faith and my confidence in my heritage, in my achievements, but not anymore. All those things are lost before me now because Christ is everything, is he not? Christ is the one that's achieved all things in my place. He's the one through whom we receive true righteousness. Through faith in him, not our works. Paul's told them this before. They're sitting there going, yeah, Paul, I think you might have mentioned that before. He said, I know that. But it's safer for you if I tell you. And then in verse 12, he brings the glories of Calvary into sharp focus. It's just brilliant. Look again. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And here's why. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, to Paul, that was everything. The reason why I want to press on, the reason why I want to strain, the reason why I want to forget is because in grace, Jesus Christ made me his own. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I was running away from God. I was persecuting Christ. Yet in grace, he called my name. He encountered me on, on the way to Damascus. 
And in a moment, I, I saw Jesus for who he was, as my Savior, the one who had died in my place. And I put my faith in him, knowing that that gift of faith was indeed a gift from him. And through Jesus then, who made me his own, I've been forgiven, I've been redeemed, I've been reconciled, I've been justified. Heaven is going to be my home because Jesus Christ made me his own. So why do I want to press on? Why do I want to know him more? Why do I want to forget? Why do I want to strain? What, what motivates me in all this? Well, Philippians Church, I'm going to tell you again. It's safer for you. I like telling you. Because of the gospel. Because Christ Jesus made me his own. And so church, I want to encourage you then, verse 16, only let us hold true then to what we have attained. Let us hold fast to the gospel. Let us never move on from the gospel. As David Pryor once wrote, we must never move on from the gospel, only ever into a deeper understanding of the gospel. You know, different times, I've been a pastor for, for nearly 15 years now, I've encountered people that have actually been somewhat upset that we talk about the gospel so much. And it's with, in some ways, grievance, but also in a desire to help that I turn them to passages like this and say, you know what? There's nothing more mature than we can do as a church than holding fast to the gospel. Because that's what Paul was all about. See, the Ephesian church, which he planned and which he gave himself to preaching the gospel to them, he leaves them and he writes them and he spends half of his book telling them about the gospel. To the Corinthian church, he considered nothing else among them apart from Christ and him crucified. To Timothy, his child in the faith, as Paul's life was coming to an end, he instructs Timothy and implores Timothy to effectively keep the main thing the main thing, to hold fast to the word of truth, to hold fast to the gospel, the Philippian church, he tells them, and indeed then us, let us hold true then to what we have attained. If we're going to be mature as Christians, we must never move on from the gospel. We must never think of the gospel as the means through which we become as Christians and then we just move on. And we never move on from the gospel. We hold true to it. We hold it fast. We determinedly keep it central. Paul, that's what Christian maturity really was. So what does Christian maturity really look like? Does it look like perfection? Does it look like people that sometimes we encounter and we think, you know, are you floating 30 centimetres above the ground or something? Because do, do you experience something that I don't experience? Because, man, you're just rocking it out of the park. You know, don't tell me anything else about your 14-hour quiet time before 6 a.m. in the morning, because I don't want to know. It's intimidating. It's discouraging. Is that what Christian maturity is? Never failing, never making any mistakes. No, Paul says, that ain't it. In fact, if anything, be weary of that. That ain't genuine. Christian maturity is like Paul, a man who is humbly aware of what he's not his own failings, his own areas where he needs to grow, his own journey. A man who is passionately pursuing the Saviour, though. He's not allowing his 
imperfections to therefore make him complacent. No, he's pressing on. He's beginning and straining on. And he's motivated in all that because he's holding true to the gospel. My friends, if we want to be mature, I want to encourage you. Like he's going to go on to tell us in verse 17, we need then to imitate him in this. To be like him. Not pretending that we're perfect. Humbly being aware of where we need to grow and yet still passionately pursuing the Saviour. Determinedly holding on to the gospel which will motivate us to pursue the Saviour. And here's what we can then anticipate. We'll be mature. Maturity will be our theme. Our maturity will be who we are. Let's make it then our story. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for the way you provoke us in our hearts and you open our eyes not to discourage us or condemn us or displace us. No, you open our eyes to draw us closer to your Son. And Lord, I pray for us all as we have seen ourselves in the mirror over the last few weeks. Would we go away now and make some changes? Because Lord, we want to be like you. We want to know you more. We want to hold fast to the gospel as you've instructed us. And Lord, we want to feel the full effect of that in our lives as it motivates to know your son more. Help us, Lord. The weak people we are, the distracted people that we are, help us to know your son more. Do this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, please think about how you can apply this message. We don't want to come each Sunday, see ourselves in the mirror, go away making no changes, because James tells us we'll never be blessed in that. Let's be blessed in our doing. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you.